Shine your light and let the whole world see. We're singing for the glory of the risen king. That'll be important for later. I'm glad that that was uh, what we got to sing this evening. Well, we're here again to study the word of God. So why don't you bow with me in a word of prayer and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the final revelation of yourself that you've given us in your son. We thank you for the cross on which he died to pay the penalty for our sins and that he was risen so that we could have the hope of eternal life and that we could have the hope that we too will rise with him and enjoy um, uh, eternal peace and uh, blessedness and happiness with you after this world has passed. Open our eyes so that we can behold wonderful things in your word and help us to tremble before you as we look at this story. Amen. I've entitled this message tonight, Carnal Christians. Carnal Christians. It's sort of a phrase that has gone out of use today, and rightfully so. Um, It was used to describe these two classes, supposedly two classes of Christians, those who are carnal and those who are spiritual. Supposedly those who uh, believed in Jesus as Savior, but were not following Him as Lord. That is what this word, uh, this phrase, carnal Christian, is meant to describe. Someone who believes in Jesus but isn't following Jesus, which is a complete misnomer, um, which doesn't make any sense at all. It is totally unbiblical, and you won't find it in the pages of Scripture. Uh, those who have put their faith and faith and trust in Christ as Savior also follow Him as Lord. It's not that they choose to do so as an additional thing. They follow Christ. He says that my sheep know me and they, follow, they know my voice and they follow me. And so uh, the reason I chose this title for our message tonight uh, was because if there was anybody in the Bible that from outward appearances would seem to be a carnal believer, someone who trusted God but didn't follow him, it was this gentleman Lot that we're going to be looking at in Genesis 19. So if you can, turn with me there in Genesis 19. It's a very familiar narrative to all of us, or to most of us at least. Uh, It is an infamous story. It is a story that almost has become so familiar that we tend to just take it for granted. Um, But hopefully tonight we can look at it with some fresh eyes and we can come away uh, changed as a result of it. It's obviously a controversial story in our time in history and in our place in the world. The fire and brimstone and the smoke of this record are legendary, and it's a clear picture of God's attitude toward homosexuality and the judgment that awaits wicked and unrepentant sinners. It didn't take long after the fall of the human race in Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden, only a handful of generations for entire societies to descend into the most disgusting and depraved forms of sins. Sermons on this passage have rightly focused on the destruction of these cities in the valley and have been titled things, uh, have been given titles like the death of a society, the sins of Sodom, fire from heaven, and uh, rightly so, because that is a, that is a uh, a primary focus of this passage. So follow along with me as we read. We're not going to get through the entire chapter of uh, uh, of this, the chapter 19. We're not going to get through the whole thing. 
uh, I think that it'll we'll maybe get through maybe a third of it and then we'll we'll go from there uh, in subsequent messages. So uh, turn with me to Genesis 19. I'll start reading at verse one. And after I read this passage, we will actually return to chapter 18 to take a look at that because it's very important for our understanding of what happens as well. So verse one, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands. The men referring to the angels inside reached out their hands and brought lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. It's easy for us who are well acquainted with the scriptures or with the book of Genesis to read this and to not be overcome with a sense of fear, with a sense of horror and terror because it's so familiar to us. Likewise, it can be very easy for us to become so accustomed, so accustomed to the sexual immorality in all forms, but especially in the form that we see in this passage, that we can become so accustomed to it in our society, in our culture, that we're completely desensitized to it, that we're numb to it, that we hear of it and we just think, oh, no big deal, business as usual. And instead, what this passage shows us is that we should, be, we should be disgusted by it, that we should tremble at the fury and the rage of God toward this uh, flamboyant perversion of human sexuality, 
something that God created to be beautiful. And we'll consider these as we move along through the story, but what I want to do tonight is focus our attention on this man, Lot. Lot had a lot of issues. He's held up in the New Testament as an example of faith, but he is not an example of living. He is not an example of how believers are to live. And I believe that, this, uh, that Lot's story is included in the Bible as a warning to believers, a warning to them. I think that, is, that his story demonstrates, and this is going to be our main point for tonight, that believers can be so influenced by the world that their witness is compromised and their effectiveness in the world is minimized. That you can be a believer, that you can be on your way to heaven, and you can still live a life that has little impact on those around you, that does very little for the kingdom of God. Ultimately, Christ is going to build his own church. We participate in that, but we are not the power behind that. Christ is the power behind that, and he is going to affect change ultimately through his Holy Spirit. But he chooses to use us, to use our lives, to use our impact on the people around us for this purpose. And we can, uh, we, uh, we, it's not that we prevent God from working. You know, you hear this phrase, oh, you know, you're not allowing God to work. You know, that's nonsense. Uh, but God does choose to work through our lives. And you can choose to either cooperate with the Holy Spirit or not. That is true. And as a believer, you can be so caught up in everything that's going on around you uh, in the world that your effectiveness is minimized and you produce little fruit. You will produce fruit by nature of you being a believer and abiding in the vine of Christ. But we need to really consider if we're going to produce much fruit for the Lord or little. And that's what we're going to be concerned with um, this evening as we go through this story. So I told you that we'd have to go back uh, in chapter 18 just to get a grip, just to see where we are in the storyline of the Bible. And so God has made a covenant with Abraham to make him a father of many people and of, uh, of many nations, and that many nations in the world will be blessed through him. And so he comes to Abraham and his wife with two angels, an angelic escort, and they come in the form of three men, this manifestation, this physical manifestation. God in his nature, in his essence, cannot be seen. God is spirit. But he can and does manifest himself in a visual, physical way at certain points in history in order to reveal a certain uh, quality about himself. Something about himself he manifests uh, physically in order to communicate that to people. So he approaches Abraham at his tent and Abraham prepares a meal for him. And the Lord tells him that in a year's time that Sarah is going to conceive and bear a son. And Sarah laughs. And he confronts Sarah and says, why did, why did Sarah laugh when I said this? She didn't believe him. And she said, oh, no, no, I didn't laugh. He said, no, but you did laugh. And so he leaves from there with his angelic escort. And as Abraham is going along with him, he says, should I, should I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? He's about to destroy the cities of the valley, Sodom, Gomorrah, and a couple other cities as well, because this outcry of this sin that characterized this place was crying out to heaven for judgment. And so turn with me one more time to uh, chapter 18, verse 22. 
And we'll just read to the beginning of 19 just to kind of uh, calibrate ourselves to what's going on here. So the men turned, the men being the, being the Lord and these two angels, the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Then he asks a million-dollar question here. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Abraham didn't realize just how just God is, and he was about to find out. And the Lord said, if I find in Sodom, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes, suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? He said, I will will not destroy it if I find 45 there. And so he continues to work his way down to 10 people. What if there are 10 righteous people in the city? Will you destroy it then? He said, no, I won't. I will do what is right. I can be trusted to do what is right. And so that brings us to chapter 19 as the Lord parts from Abraham and the angels part from Abraham and they head down into the city. In verse 1 of chapter 19, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth. Again, uh, angels are spiritual, powerful beings distinct from humans. It's, it's funny how you, you meet people who still have this notion that angels are just people who have died and graduated to heaven and have earned their halos and their wings, and it's just not true. It's just not biblical. And so we can, we can kind of assume that, but I don't want to assume that everyone fully understands that. Angels are distinct from human beings. So I just want to point that out just at the outset. But notice where we find Lot here. He's at the gate, at the gate. In the ancient world, the city gate was where the officials and the leaders and the judges, anybody who was anybody, anybody who was, uh, who had serious business to conduct, they did it at the gate of the city. This was just common practice in the ancient world. If you were somebody in the city, this is where you conducted your affairs. And so for Lot to be here demonstrates to us that he is a prominent member of this community, a pillar of the community, in fact. If he was... Uh, Being arraigned, they would say, no, he has serious ties to the community. He is not a flight risk because this is is where you would find him. And a sweep through the last several chapters of Genesis, we're not going to go through all of them, I'll just mention them to you in passing, show Lot's progressive assimilation into the life and the culture of this city. He was sojourning with his uncle, Abraham, and Abraham said, you know what? There's not enough space here for the two of us and all of our stuff. So you know what? I'm going to give you first pick. Do you want to have this land over here or this land over here? Lot saw that the land by Sodom was well watered and it was looking pretty good. So he chose that instead, instead of deferring it to his older uncle. And so in chapter 13, verse 12, it says that he moved his tent as far as Sodom. So he's making his approach to the city, getting closer and closer. Chapter 14, the next one, verse 12, it says that he is dwelling in Sodom. 
And here in chapter 19, verse 1, it says he's sitting at the gate. So you see that he's getting closer and closer. He's becoming more and more ingrained into the life, into the, the, the bloodstream of this city. And so there, these are seemingly minor details of, of where he was at the gate that are important for us to consider. They, they, um, they don't look like much, but they tell us a lot. And they tell us a lot about Lot. Verse 2, and said, my lords, so he's, he's, he's approaching these angels as they're coming into the city. My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. Something was distinct about these two men that Lot felt the need to approach them. And as we continue through, we're going to see that there was something distinct about them that drew the attention of the men of the city as well. As many of you know, hospitality was a common cultural practice, even an expectation in this part of the world at the time, and even still in many places of the world today. Very unlike American culture, um, which is very unhospitable, we can't even smile at someone and, you know, doubt, as you're walking down the street, you have to look away because it's just so awkward that you can't engage with people. Uh, that's unfortunate. That's unfortunate because at one time we were estranged from God and he invited us in and brought us in and we should, have, we should reflect that same attitude toward people as well. With discernment, qualified with discernment, um, but that should be our, our general character, our general practice. So um, at this time it would be almost rude to engage with someone and if you found out that they have no place to stay to not invite them in. That would be impolite of you to, to just let them go on their way and not invite them for food and lodging. So we see a glimpse of this with Lot and these two men. This, there's this politeness, this, this cultural, traditional politeness about Lot to invite them in. But I think as we'll find out that there's more going on here than that. There's more going on than just this cultural practice, expectation. Lot knows what happens to men who come through to this city. He's not ignorant of the perversity and the violence of the city. This is not just a courtesy. This is a protective measure. You need to come stay at my house, spend the night, and then get up on out of here in the morning. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. Lot, are you insane? There's no way I can allow you to do that. It's like spending the night on a bench in the Tenderloin or in Skid Row. Like, are you crazy? You're not gonna do that. You're gonna come stay with me instead and then in the morning you are out of here. He pressed them strongly. So he is very insistent, urgently insistent. You cannot do this. So they yielded. They turned aside to him and entered his house and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. This would have been customary. Verse four, but before they lay down, the men of the city... The men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Moses, who authored Genesis, ensures that his readers are not in the dark, that they're not mistaken, that there's no misunderstanding. Every single male in the city came to Lot's residence to gang rape these two men who are staying with him. 
This passage doesn't tell us anything about the appearance of the angels, but I don't think it's a stretch to say that they were probably good-looking men. They were probably dazzling men. We see as angels take the form of men that they are, they're radiant in their appearance. I'm sure that some of that was, was shielded, that they, that they did just have this appearance of men, but there was something different about them, and these men took notice. And it seems apparent to me that this type of uh, at least from the, from the text, it seems apparent to me that this type of communal sexual violence toward the vulnerable visiting men was a standard practice of the men, for the men of the city. That this was not just some unusual occurrence. That this was just some isolated incident. The word no here is yada in the Hebrew. It's a word that's used to denote intimacy, marital intimacy, that is supposed to be reserved for a husband and a wife. It was used to um, describe uh, the conception of Seth, that Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore a son. It's used, it's used even to describe the intimate loving knowledge that God has for his people. When it says that God foreknew his people, that he, he knew them beforehand. It's not that he, he looked down the hallway of time and, and, and saw them. It's that he chose to set his love upon them before the foundation of the world. That's the word that's used here, to know. He foreknew them. And so this word knowledge, it's essentially a polite, modest way to speak about sexual relations between a husband and a wife. And so they say, bring them out to us that we may know them. There's no question that this mob of depraved men are here to violate these visiting men. And it was every single man in town. Now remember God's deal with Abraham to not destroy the city for the sake of 10 righteous people. He would, event, he would find out that there aren't 10 righteous people in the city. That is how far this place has gone down. If it wasn't evident to us before, it is now. That outside of Lot's family, there are no righteous people. There are no um, good people, you could say. There are no people who, with a right standing with God. This city is beyond the hope of repentance. It is past the point of no return with God. Turn to a very familiar passage to all of us in this church, especially Romans 1, and we'll look with some fresh eyes at what the Lord has to say about societies that fall into these kinds of sins. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and un ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So we'll, we'll see a society that has rejected the knowledge of God. He is going to abandon them to their sin. 
Three levels of abandonment. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. He gives them up to sexual immorality. Verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So he gives them up to sexual immorality and then homosexual immorality. The judgment of abandonment is evidenced not by the presence of homosexuality. Homosexuality exists where human culture exists. The judgment of abandonment is evidenced by the societal acceptance and celebration of homosexuality. That is when you know that God has abandoned a society, that the wrath of God is abiding over this culture. It is, it's not that homosexuality will merely incur the judgment of God. It is the judgment of God revealed against a society that has rejected him. When a society is waving the rainbow flag, you know that God has given it over to its own sin. He says, this is what you want. I'll give it to you in spades. You can have it. And just watch what happens. The Bible with one voice throughout the scriptures condemns homosexual, homosexual desire and homosexual acts as gross and heinous sins against God. It categorically consistently and clearly condemns this sin and even describes them as against nature, which is something that is not used uh, to describe other sins, even other sexual sins. I trust that I don't have to work too hard to convince you all of this tonight here in this church. But just so we can all be equipped as we go out into the world that we live in today, turn with me to Leviticus. Turn with me to Leviticus 18. And we'll just briefly go over God's attitude. Um, God's attitude. We're just, we'll move through a couple of passages in Leviticus and then uh, we'll come back to 1 Corinthians. Leviticus 18, verses 19 and following. This is the law being given about unlawful sexual relations for this chapter. Verse 19, you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she's in her menstrual uncleanness. You shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife and so make yourself unclean with her. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Moloch and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a, as with a woman. It is an abomination. And you shall not lie with any animal, and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. Over in chapter 20, verse 13, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. This sin was so serious that in Old Testament Israel, it was given as a civic law. 
that this would incur the death penalty. That's how seriously the Lord takes this sin. That's how, that's how much of an expression of rebellion against God's created order this type of sin is. And this is, lest anyone just say, oh, okay, well, well that's, that's the Old Testament. We're, we're not under that anymore. We don't have to follow that anymore. Uh, turn over to, we already saw it in Romans, but turn over to 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6. I'll just begin reading as you're turning there. Verses 9 and 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. In other words, make no mistake about it. I'm being crystal clear about this. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Ouch. But the hope in verse 11, and such were some of you. These sins characterized believers before they came to Christ at some point. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Consistently, this sin is condemned. Some might say, oh, well, it doesn't hurt anybody. How can it be wrong? How can it be wrong if it doesn't hurt anybody? Do we have an ethics of harm? Or do we have an ethic of God's design and intention? Something isn't wrong because it hurts other people, though oftentimes wrong things do hurt other people. It is wrong because it is a violation of the way that God designed human beings and human sexuality. That is why it's wrong. Oh, well, Jesus never condemns homosexuality in the New Testament. Jesus affirmed and fulfilled the Old Testament law to the T, which calls homosexuality an abomination. He fulfills it, and he affirms it even in the Sermon on the Mount. Also, Jesus invested his own authority in the apostles. So when they write, they speak with the authority of Christ. So try again. This poses an interesting question. Are all sins equal? It seems to single this sin out quite a bit. Are all sins equal? Well, I'd say yes and no. Sins are equal in the sense that they all make you guilty before God. Guilt does not yield to degrees. There are not degrees of guilt. You either are guilty or you're not. You either deserve hell or you don't. So in that sense, I would say that all sins are equal. But in another sense, in an important one, I would say that all sins are not equal in that I believe that some sins are uh, to a higher degree of offensiveness to God, of, of disgust to God. And I believe that in, it is in that sense that the, that the Bible in the Old Testament and the New singles out homosexuality as as a gross and abominable and disgusting sin against God. So we affirm with the Bible that this sin is to be condemned. And remember, we condemn sin. We do not condemn people. We reach people with the gospel of Christ. 
Because except by the grace of God, there go I. So verse 6, Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Now, there's a handful of items to consider within these three verses, but I just want to pose a question. What is your emotional response to Lot's counteroffer? Just think, just think about it for yourself. What is your emotional response to his counteroffer to these sodomites? On the one hand, his intention to uh, protect and to take responsibility for his guests is commendable in a sense, culturally respectable. But my, my primary concern, we'll get to the daughters, but my primary concern here is with these two words, my brothers. My brothers? Remember what we talked about with Lot's progressive association and assimilation with the occupants of this city, with the culture of Sodom? Lot has become way too comfortable with these Sodomites, way too comfortable with the residents of this city to the point where he is identifying with them, calling them my brothers. I had a mentor who uh, taught me, well, he suggested to me, this is not a matter of authoritative you know, teaching, but he recommended to me, you know, you should stop calling people bro that aren't, that aren't either your brother or your brothers in Christ. I just thought that was some that was a that was a, a a good practice, a good something to consider because words mean things, right? Someone who's an unbeliever, I don't cons- I don't I don't have this uh, this kin we don't have this kinship with them, this the, where we're unequally yoked with unbelievers. But that's what Lot is doing here. He is yoking himself unequally to these people, calling them my brothers. He's a case study. He is a profile in a worldly believer, accommodating to the culture. Now, what he does here with his his daughter, some may just gloss over it and like, oh, you know, that was just the culture. It was was culturally acceptable to, to, um, you know, prioritize your your guests over your family if you're showing hospitality. Uh, Remember when Andrew Rappaport came and he taught us about hermeneutics, about things that are descriptive versus prescriptive? Yeah, this is not prescriptive. This is just describing what Lot is doing here. We are, we're not meant to just excuse it away as some cultural thing. We're not meant to be neutral or, or indifferent toward his counteroffer. He's supposed to, he's their father. I mean, their own, his own flesh and blood is supposed to protect them and he prostitutes them out instead? No, we are not meant to be indifferent toward this. This is a shocking, reprehensible, cowardly, indefensible sin against God. The New Testament calls Lot righteous. He doesn't seem righteous to me. And it is a further affirmation that a believer's righteousness is by faith and faith alone, not by their works. He is a perfect example of that, a perfect picture of that truth. In verse 9, they respond to his counteroffer, and they say, stand back. This fellow came to sojourn. 
this is just a visitor. This is some alien among us. And now he's going he's gonna to be the judge. He's gonna, you're going to judge us? Now we're going to deal with you worse than with them. And they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. Get out of our way. Stand back, Lot. We reject your offer. And we're not just going to come for the men we came for. We're coming for you now too. You know, when believers try to get the world to like them, to get the unbelieving world, the the world that's under the power of Satan to to like us, you know what happens? It doesn't work. They don't like us. They're not going to like what we believe. They're not going to like the way we live. It's a, it's fruitless. It's an exercise in futility. Jesus said that if they hated me, they will hate you. It's the foolishness of, of accommodating church worship services to unbelievers. Of what? Go, going around the neighborhood and asking, well, what do you not like about church? Okay, we're not going to have any of that. So that way you can come and feel comfortable. Ridiculous. It's exactly what he's doing here. Being unequally yoked with unbelievers. The offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman have no fellowship together. Light has no fellowship with darkness. And so, with their rejection of his counteroffer, they're confirmed in their wickedness, not content with anything less than the perversion that they crave. Who are you to tell us that what we want is wrong? This is who we are. We were born this way. The heart wants what it wants. Who are you to judge us? You don't have any say in this. You know, even in cultures like this, where there were these type of sins where were accepted or approved, you know what wasn't approved of? Rape. It's a damnable crime in, in most, if not all, societies, then and now. It's an unacceptable form of sexual expression. You know, it's interesting to note that even in our culture, where we seem to have just absolutely flown off the cliff with the, you know, just break through the rails and just flown off, that there are still certain forms of sexual expression that are unacceptable, even in our culture. We'll see how long that lasts. Bestiality, pedophilia. You know, there's a term now, uh, minor attracted persons. You know, animal attracted persons. We'll see how we'll see how long that lasts it, in the, with the at the rate that we're going. So, for an entire population, and the this is again, this is the whole city. This is every male in town. This is not just some isolated group. For all of them to participate in this unparalleled depravity. Verse ten. But the men, referring to the angels, reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Struck with blindness. They're still going. It took a a miracle, a supernatural intervention just to save Lot's life. Think of the, the fury and the force of this mob. They're really after him. That's how, that's how deep their lust runs. Verse 12, Then the men said to Lot, 
They turn to him and say, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place. Because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So now they disclose the purpose for their presence in the city in the first place. Total destruction. Total destruction. They're errand boys. That's what they are. Angelic errand boys. Sent to wipe this place from the face of the earth. The sin of this city has reached its maximum capacity. We just heard ambulances going by. The gurneys inside those ambulances, they have a max capacity of 700. After that, that's it. No use for them. There's no more use for this city. No more use for it. It has reached its maximum capacity for sin. The, to use a phrase later used for the uh, Amalekites, the Amalekites, the iniquity of Sodom is complete. Its reprobation and depravity is fully realized, and now there is only one outcome. There's only one outcome for this place. We just spent the last several weeks, well, I guess we finished it a handful of weeks ago, but studying the prophet Amos. And what does Amos say about this, the, the state of Israel, the condition of Israel? What, does he, what picture does he use to describe it? A basket of summer fruit, meaning fruit that are fully ripe. Fruit that are ripe for judgment. That is what Israel was, and that is what this city is. This city is a basket of summer fruit. They are absolutely ripe for the wrath of God. So they, sit, so they tell Lot, if you have any family, if you have any relatives, if you have anyone who will take you seriously, get them and get out of here. We're about to raise this place to the ground. It's about to be an inferno in this city. It is about to be hell on earth. Verse 14, so Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. He, says, he describes them as his sons-in-law, but they were yet to marry his daughters. They hadn't married them yet. A note about ancient cultures is that yeah, in many of them, it was common for a betrothal or, a, in, or an engagement to be almost, if not as, binding as a consummated marriage. That's why when we see in the New Testament when Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant, conceived by the Holy Spirit, but pregnant, he's betrothed to her. They're not married yet. It says that he set out to divorce her quietly. And so this betrothal, this, this engagement was as almost as good as married. That was how... Um, how binding it was to them. And so this issue of these, these daughters of Lot being engaged to these men of the city, we have no indication that their, that their fiancés, that Lot's sons-in-law, are any different from the men of Sodom. No indication. So I think we can rightly infer that we have positive reason to believe that these men were as, as reprobate and depraved as its other occupants. Because when Lot warned them about the coming destruction, they just laughed him to scorn. They thought he was joking around. And this is a truth for the ages about unbelievers. Making a joke 
about warnings of judgment. Ha yeah, yeah, ha ha, judgment's coming, boo-hoo. The refusal to take seriously the urgent warnings of the wrath of God is characteristic of unbelievers. Turn with me to 2 Peter 3, 2 Peter 3. Which, by the way, if you, get the, if you have the chance, as we continue to go through uh, Genesis 19, 2 Peter is a phenomenal commentary on Lot and about the example that Sodom and Gomorrah was for future believers. So if you get a chance, read through 2 Peter. It's only three chapters. Um, it's, a great, it's, it's great to shed light on this passage in the Old Testament, this story here. So turn to chapter, uh, chapter 3. If you're reading from an ESV, you may have a little... Subtitle there that's put there by the editors, the translators, the day of the Lord will come. So verse one, it reads, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. So Peter's writing to these churches. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where, where's, where's, this pro, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things have continued as they were from the beginning of creation. You know, things have just been going on. We've been talking about judgment for hundreds of years, for decades. You've been blabbing on about judgment your whole life, and yet, you know, where is it? For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, meaning the waters, the world that existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. The Lord promised that he'd never again destroy the world with water. He's reserving it for fire instead. Being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The heart of God is for people to turn, to return to him and not perish. His holy character, his just character, really his, his, the goodness of his character demands that sin be punished. And if they don't repent, then they will perish. But the heart of God is that people would come back to him, that they'd return, that they'd repent and be saved, that they'd live. And so that's, that's the, that is the function, that is the purpose of telling people about the wrath of God, of telling people about the judgment of God. It's an expression of his mercy that wrath be preached. This speaks volumes about supposed Christians who downplay the wrath of God, who, who focus exclusively on his love. We're all for the love of God. We love the love of God. We cherish his love that, that he, when we were undeserving, that he reached down to us in love, 
that he sent Jesus because he loved us. It's not that Jesus was pulling the father's arm and saying, oh, if I go die, will you love them? No, the father sent him for, this pur- for that purpose out of his great love. But we need to play with a full deck and we need to understand, we, you, you can't understand the love of God without the wrath of God. My problem with people who exclude the wrath of God and only talk about the love of God isn't that they have too high a view of God's love. It's actually that they have too low a view of it. How can you understand the the magnitude of God's forgiveness if you don't understand the depth, the the fury of his rage against sin? You can't understand it. I think that that is a great litmus test for those who are genuinely in Christ. How do they regard the wrath of God? Do they just, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, it it mentions it, but, you know, really God is all about love. My God is about love. Do they tremble? Do they fear? Do we fear? This whole notion of, of, of progressive Christianity versus radical Christianity, conservative Christianity, it's stupidity. There's a great, great book, um, made a hundred years ago, written, it's entitled Christianity and Liberalism. And it ticked off a whole lot of people because it, well, that implies that my liberal Christianity isn't Christianity. That's right. That's why, that's why he titled it that. There is no such thing as liberal Christianity or, or conservative Christianity. There's no such things as kinds of Christians. We, going back to the title of this, carnal Christian spirit. You are either in Christ or you're not. You are either uh, repentant of your sins or you're not. You are either uh, following Christ the best you can by the power of the Spirit or you're not. There's no such thing as, as kinds of Christians, kinds of, of Christianities. It's a, it's a myth. And I absolutely recommend that book, uh, Christianity and Liberalism by Jay Gresham. Uh, Machen, if you're if you're interested in reading about things like that, he goes through these different doctrines and shows that these are not kinds of Christianities. These are different religions, totally different religions. They're not the same. And so, as we finish here this evening, uh, we'll we'll go through the the rest of this story the next time we come together, or one of the next times that we come together. Um, what are some takeaways from this? How how are we to how are we to respond? What, what is this supposed to do in our lives? I mean, we think of the fact that Lot is urged to leave this place. The sinful city, they say, get up on out of here. We're about to destroy this place. Well, how, how, do, we, how do I apply that to my life? Should I, you know? I live pretty close to San Francisco, relatively speaking, compared to the rest of the world. That's a pretty depraved place. That's a pretty ugly city, very... In many ways, you know, geographically a very beautiful city, but very ugly city as far as sin is concerned. Should I get up and leave? Should I uproot my life and pack it up and move somewhere else to be farther away from that place? There are a lot of homosexuals at my job with whom I work, with whom I share an ambulance for 12 hours. Should I quit so I can get away from all of it? 
What, well, why, why, and why stop at San Francisco? Should we just up and leave California to, to move to a, a little sanctified city somewhere up in, you know, somewhere else? Guess what? There's no righteous places on planet Earth. There are no sanctified cities. There are no holy huddles anywhere else. 1 John 5, 19, this world is under the power of the evil one. It doesn't mean, it has nothing to do with geography. What it does mean is that we need to be unapologetic, uncompromising testimonies to the righteousness of God. Testimonies to the transformative power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if the place that you're living in is a temptation to you, then the wisdom of Proverbs 5 through 7 says that yes, you should leave. You should, you should not allow yourself, let me put it even more point, you should not choose to continue to allow yourself to be in a place where you're going to be tempted to sin. But that aside, wherever you live, wherever you go, you need to be a testimony to the work of God through Christ in your life. Separation from sin has, has little to do with geographical proximity. Now, he had to leave because they were going to destroy this place. And if you're there, you're, you're toast. Literal toast. But as far as we're concerned, separation from sin has little to do with geography. It has much more to do with how you live where you are, how you are living. Otherwise, churches, however, faith, however faithful they are to the word, if, if there are churches in San Francisco, faithful churches in, in, in Los Angeles, in Las Vegas, in Miami, they'd be in sin to stay there. And I don't think that's the case. They'd have to move to, to the moon if they wanted to you know, get away from sin. Remember, we're on mission in this world. We're, we're, the reason that we still exist on planet Earth is to reach out to lost people. One of the things I think we should take away from this is that we should be disgusted by homosexuality. We should not think lightly of it. We should be, it is called an abomination. That means disgusting, detestable. We should be disgusted by homosexuality. I think that the Bible is very clear about that. It also is clear that we must be lovingly, compassionately engaging with all sinners, including those caught up in the sins of homosexual practice and homosexual desire. That we need to be compassionate and loving toward them, telling them the truth warning them about God's anger toward it for the sake of Christ and for the sake of their souls. You know, it could be very easy to be an armchair opponent of homosexuality. And uh, for people just out there vaguely in general, just know I'm against it. It's a whole other thing to, to be reaching out to those people and showing them, you know what? There's grace even for this. There's grace even for homosexuality. There's grace even for bestiality and, and pedophilia, that if you would repent of those, that you could know the forgiveness of God that comes through the cross. And remember, Paul says that, and such were some of you, but you were washed and cleansed. And so we'll take a look at the uh, rest of the narrative as we, as we go through some of these uh, Wednesdays, but uh, take that home tonight, that 
we should be rightfully disgusted by these sins. We should not be numb or desensitized to the things, desensitized to what we see around us. Um, that we should know that we're in a culture that is under the wrath of God. It's not that homosexuality is, is, is off, you know, only in dark hotel rooms and in back alleys, you know, in the deep parts of town. You know, when it is at the highest, when it's in the White House, when it is in the highest forms of education, when it is in elementary and preschool children's education, when it's in medicine, when it's in entertainment and music and art and all of those, you know, in business, that is a culture that's under the wrath of God. So, so be sensitive to that. Be disgusted by the sin and reach out to those people. Don't, don't just hate, don't just oppose it from afar. Go after those people. We're on mission. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this story and put your fear into us. Help us to tremble at your word and at your rage towards sin. And Lord, in so doing, help us to appreciate more and more the love and the mercy and the grace and the compassion that you have towards sinners. Lord, we thank you that you've expressed in your word elsewhere, asking the question, do I delight do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked? And you answer your own question. I don't take pleasure in the death of anyone. My desire is that they turn and live. Lord, we thank you so much. And would you send us out into this dark and dying world so that we could be a light fierce sun? Lord, as we just sang before, shine your light, let the whole world see. Would you do that in our lives? Amen. Amen.